everyone, I am joined here by the one and only Dr. Walter Block. Many of you may already know him, but those for those who don't, he's the distinguished professor uh, from Loyola University, and he holds the Harold E. Worth Eminent Scholar Endowed Chair in Economics. He's author of countless books, such as Defending the Undefendable, which you can see behind me. But he also has the amazing achievement of having published over a thousand scholarly articles into academic journals, which is pretty unheard of. Now, I can easily say, Walter, um, you, along with people like Tom Woods, are the people that led me down the path to be a scholar. I remember someone years ago mentioned your name, and I looked you up, and I was just hooked on YouTube. So without further ado, I made Walter an offer he couldn't refuse. I asked him to come on and talk about uh, the life of Murray Rothbard for an hour with me. And uh, he, he was the greatest economist who ever lived, in my opinion. Um, but Walter, thanks so much for coming on. Uh, my pleasure. Uh, thanks for having me. One minor correction. I'm hoping to do a thousand by the time I die, but right now I'm at about 550. Oh, excuse me. You're at 500. I, I don't know why I said a thousand. That's right. You're at 500, but yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm hoping though. Yeah, there you go. Well, I guess we're just going to jump right into it and talk about Murray Rothbard. Like I said, I personally think he was the greatest economist of all time. Obviously, he wouldn't have been where he was without Mises, but uh, tell us a little about a little bit about anarcho-capitalism before we start. Uh, just tell us about it. Well, you know, I sort of, to me, it's sort of like who's better, uh, Johann Sebastian Bach or uh, or um, Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart? And I sort of flip back and forth. Uh, sometimes it's Bach, sometimes it's uh, Mozart. Uh, I, I had a little fight with my wife when our first son was born. I wanted to name him Wolfgang. And she said no, but we compromised, and uh, his middle name is Amadeus. <laughs> then when my daughter was born, I wanted to name her after Johann Sebastian Bach. I didn't really want to name either of them uh, about Mises and Rothbard because I didn't know what they would be like. And, you know, somehow I figured music is sort of non-confrontational, non-controversial, and know what, no matter what views my kids brought up with, they could still love uh, Mozart and Bach. As it happens, my son is a libertarian, my daughter isn't. But uh, And then uh, we named my daughter Hannah instead of, uh, uh, instead of Johan. I wanted Johanna, but Hannah is close enough. So I'm not sure who my favorite uh, composer is, uh, Mozart or Bach, and I'm not sure who my favorite economist is. It's those two, uh, not Mozart and Bach, but rather uh, Mises and Rothbard. But I am sure of one thing, uh, that the greatest libertarian who's ever lived, uh, at least so far, is Murray Rothbard. You know, well, what do you think about when you hear like Milton Friedman started libertarianism? That that oh. makes me mad, yeah. <laughs> oh. Well, I don't think Milton Friedman started libertarianism. <laughs> well, Murray didn't really start it. Um, uh, you know, we go back way before Murray. Uh, I don't know. Um, I guess Murray termed it. Well, Murray uh, characterized it. Murray is the greatest contributor to it. But, you know, the, Murray would acknowledge there were libertarians before him. Uh, um, Milton Friedman is sort of a libertarian, but only if you're in a big tent uh, kind of a situation. The, the way I see the libertarian ballpark or the ball players is at the top of the heap. Oh, by the way, I have to show you my my uh, t-shirt. Hey, uh, not so much you, but uh, <laughs> here. Um, uh, at the top of the heap are the anarcho-capitalists. Those are the people like Murray and myself who believe that the the state violates the non-aggression principle and the non-aggression principle is sort of the bedrock of libertarianism because they compel you to pay taxes whether you want to or not and you never agree to and well we I, was about, I was about to say on uh, milton freeman didn't he help institute the withholding tax <laughs> yes he, he certainly did that uh 
but I'm getting the Milton Friedman. So the, the top of the heap is um, uh, anarcho-capitalists, and that's Murray Rothbard. The next group down would be the minarchists, and that's uh, Ayn Rand and Robert Nozick, where you have a government, but it's very limited to protecting uh, people and property rights. And then one level below that is Ron Paul and the Constitution, uh, whatever the Constitution says, interpreted by people like us, not like uh, interpreted right. by the Supreme Court. And then only in the fourth position do we get to uh, classical liberalism. And here I have Milton Friedman and Friedrich Hayek, who was sort of free enterprise, but they compromise in so many ways. And the one you mentioned, the withholding tax and, and the negative income tax and, and all sorts of deviations. So Milton Friedman, I think you can call him a libertarian if you're a big tent kind of guy and, and if you're a little generous. But if you're not, you wouldn't call him a libertarian, but certainly you wouldn't call him the godfather of libertarianism or the leader of libertarianism. He was sort of a libertarian, but of a compromising sort. And yes, when, when people... Uh, think of libertarianism, they do think of, of Milton Friedman, not Murray yeah. Rothbard, because Milton Friedman won the Nobel Prize, and Milton Friedman was at the University of Chicago, and uh, which is a very famous university, and Murray was at Brooklyn Polytech, and then UNLV, which has a good basketball team, but, you know, not really. Uh, it was not. actually you who kind of cleared me up on that one issue with Milton Friedman and school vouchers, because I used to think, yeah, just give the parents a choice and they can go to school, but then I, then you made me realize, hold on, this is competition between government schools. This really isn't that much better. <laughs> yeah, the, the argument I like to use on that is, suppose restaurants were now uh, governmental. Every restaurant was a government. And Murray Rothbard said, well, privatize them. And, and Milton Friedman would say, well, no, let's have a, a voucher, a restaurant voucher. Let it stay in, in the public sector. Only now, instead of you have to go to your local restaurant and I have to go to my local restaurant, we now have a voucher. We can go to any government restaurant. Isn't that great? Well, you know, <laughs> it's not exactly <laughs> libertarian. So uh, Milton Friedman was sort of a libertarian and sort of an efficiency expert for the state. So uh, I'm not a real big fan of his, but on the other hand, I have to acknowledge he was great on minimum wage and free, uh, free trade and, um, uh, I don't know, rent control and occupational licensure. Uh, he made a contribution to liberty, but he wasn't uh, exquisitely good. He was no Mozart. He was no Bach. Oh, I think that was Rothbard's law. He uh, specialized in the things he was worse in. Yes, he was really good in some things, but what did he specialize in? money, where he was horrible. He rejected the gold standard or free market money. And then the, the stupid vouchers. I mean, his whole fortune went to the voucher program. I mean... Well, I'll just, I'll just give you one example, Walter. My current economics teacher, he's, a, he's the only free market economist at University of Colorado, Denver. I mentioned the gold standard once and he just scoffed at me like, that's the stupidest thing you could have. You want to go back to the gold standard? Like, and you know, but he's so good on so many things. It's really mind boggling. It's kind of like when he talked to Thomas Sowell about war, he's like a completely different man when he talks to him about war, but everything else, he's just like, wow, like that, he's an intellectual no, no, giant. So it's just like, how, how do you- Thomas Sowell is, is really great. I'm a big fan of his, but he's a warmonger. Yeah. So, you know, he's not as good as he could be, but yeah. you know, what the heck uh, I would, I mean, well, you know what? Forget these Chicago school guys. Let's jump into Murray Rothbard. Uh, okay. born, born to David and Ray Rothbard. Um, his dad was a chemist. Now, one thing that surprised me, and I just learned this today, I did not know that Murray got his bachelor's in mathematics. And one thing I just want to point out, I think, wasn't uh, Mises' brother like a famous mathematician? And, you know, I, I guess the point is that Austrian economists are thought of as being anti-scientific and anti-math. And in reality, I think we just state that humans are a little bit too complicated to like put as some, to be a variables in some equation. 
No, Richard von Mises, uh, um, Ludwig von Mises' brother, was a, a famous mathematician. Murray was very knowledgeable about math. And it's a mistake to think that Austrians are against a math or against statistics or against econometrics. Rather, it's a little bit more complicated. Uh, the correct view is we Austrians, unlike them, our mainstream economist types, we believe that there are economic laws uh, which you don't have to test, which you can't test. For example, I'm now going to buy you a lovely blue shirt and I'm going to pay you 20 bucks for it. And, and we agree. Well, I value that blue shirt more than 20 bucks if I buy it from you. And you value my 20 bucks more than your blue shirt if you're willing to make the deal. Now, we don't know the reason for this. You know, you might be willing to make the deal. You really value the shirt at 50, but you think I'll give you an A in the course. Uh, where I'm not even your teacher. So we don't know why you're willing to make the deal. We don't know why I'm willing to make the deal. All we know is that I value what I'm receiving more than what I'm giving. Ex ante and the reverse for you. And you can't test this. The very idea to test this is grotesque. Because if you understand the English language, you know that this is a law. Now, the Chicagoites or the mainstream don't believe in any economic laws. They're logical positivists. They think that everything has to be tested, that there can only be hypotheses. Namely, it's a hypothesis that has to be tested through econometrics to see if um, voluntary trade is mutually <laughs> beneficial in the ex-ante sense. And when you, say, when you say economic law, are you talking about like as a matter of fact, like praxeology, it's a matter of fact that humans act purposely. It doesn't matter if they're acting malevolently, benevolently, or self-harming. Right. It's praxeological because to, to deny that human beings act purposefully is to act purposefully. <laughs> You're sort of caught in the bramble tree or something. So, I had never thought about it like that. That's a good point. <laughs> but on the other hand, we Austrians believe that another part of economics, economic history, if you will, you have to have statistics. For example, we suppose the price of bananas go up by 20%. We know as a law that other things equal, people buy fewer bananas. But how many few? We don't know. Is it 10% fewer or 20% fewer or 30% fewer? In order to do that, you have to um, uh, test it econometrically. So we're not against doing that. And even on rent control or minimum wage or any of these other uh, things where we have laws, we can still use econometrics, only we're not testing it. Rather, we're illustrating it. So there's nothing wrong per se with, with econometrics or mathematical economics or what have you. It's just that uh, we believe in laws that you can't test, but but the the laws test the econometrics rather than the econometrics test the, the law. That definitely makes sense. All right, well, what was Murray Rothbard's life growing up? Did he grow up poor? Did he grow up rich? Because he was born in the Bronx, correct? I don't. You know, I'm not even sure about that. I'm not a historian of Murray Rothbard. David Gordon would be much better on oh. <laughs> uh, I didn't know he was brought up in uh, in the Bronx. I thought he was brought up in Manhattan. And I think he went to some sort of public school and he was bullied when he was a little kid. And then they put him in this Birch Wathen school where he uh, flowered and prospered and uh, did very well. And uh, then he went to get his PhD at Columbia University. Now, I happen to know a little bit about that. And I know that Murray was one of the, the best uh, economists ever. Uh, but he had a lot of trouble getting his PhD because he and Arthur Burns were uh, at odds. And uh, when Arthur Burns was there, he wouldn't allow Murray's dissertation. And Arthur Burns was sort of the cock of the walk or the 
the Gansa Macha, as they say in Yiddish, or the big shot at Columbia. And uh, while he was there, Murray couldn't get his PhD. Happily, uh, <laughs> happily, Nixon got in. <laughs> say that, I'm crossing my fingers. Uh, and uh, he made Arthur Burns head of the Fed. And when Arthur Burns was away, Murray snuck in and got his PhD. And just to be sure, this is, I don't know if you can see this, Panic of 1819. That was Murray's dissertation, correct? Correct. Yeah. yeah, I don't know if you can tell. I have, I think, every single Murray Rothbard book behind me. And uh, yeah, I'm a fan. <laughs> I've got a few of them myself. Oh, I bet. <laughs> now, uh, was, he an, was he an exceptional student? I mean, when he was going through college, was he a straight-A student or... Again, I'm sorry, I don't know. Okay, okay. That's uh, I, I expect he was, but I, I really don't know uh, if he was an A student. I, I just expect he was because he was very bright. I mean, I, I wonder what his IQ was. I really wonder that. I, I, you know, when I was a kid, like in the eighth grade, I had 140 IQ. And then I wanted to get into Mensa, and I had like 115 or something like that, and you needed 130. And then I took it again, and I realized that the IQ test was a speed test, and you just don't think. You just write. And then I got like a 190, so I got into Mensa. <laughs> uh, so I think that the IQ test is good for people who have a lower IQ than the people who make up the test. Yeah. But people who are smarter than the people who make up the test, I'm not sure about the veracity of it. So I don't know if Murray had a high IQ. I think if he took the test, fast, he would have had a high IQ. And if he just took it leisurely, uh, he wouldn't. Although there is something, you know, uh, business with numbers forward and numbers backward. Like if I tell you, repeat back after me, one, three, five, seven, nine, eleven. Everyone can do that pretty well. But if I now say repeat it backward, eleven, nine, seven, five, three, one, uh, with, with not as easy a number, now that separates the sheep from the goats, and now that is an IQ test that's impervious to um, any criticism of, uh, you know, uh, uh, regatta or, you know, uh, certain people don't know certain words or you're from a foreign country or what have you. So I, I'm a fan of the IQ, but, you know, within limitations. And I expect that Murray's IQ was exquisite. And uh, even more important, perhaps, than an IQ would be his creativity. And obviously, there's a correlation between smartness and creativity. But on, on the creativity sweepstakes in economics, there's no one, with the possible exception of Mises, who I would put on a higher level than Murray. Definitely agree. And 1962 was a great year. Uh, I guess you, you call it the year anarcho-capitalism was started. But what was the first piece you ever read by Murray? Or maybe you can preface that as a starting. How did you meet Murray? What was the first thing you read by him? Well... How did I meet Murray? That's an interesting story. Larry Moss was in my class. I was a student at Columbia University getting my PhD. I had been converted to minarchism by Ayn Rand and Nathaniel Brandon. And I was a freshman, uh, a first-year student in, in graduate school. And Larry Moss said, you must meet this guy, Murray Rothbard, because Larry and I had a kinship with each other, you know, based on the questions we would ask in class. We both knew that we were free enterprises. And he said, you must meet this guy, Murray Rothbard. He's an anarchist. And I said, an anarchist? I don't want to meet him. The anarchists are crazy. You know, they want to have to throw bombs or whatever it is. And uh, I just refused to meet Murray because he was an anarchist. And I was sort of a Randian, not a cultish one, but a, a Randian in the sense of limited government is the only way to go. And then finally, uh, Larry's roommate, Jerry Wallows, 
uh, Jerry and Larry ganged up on me. I remember it was on the street corner right near Columbia. They didn't, they didn't use violence, but they ganged up on me, and they said, you must meet Murray, you must meet Murray. And uh, finally, I, I agreed. And, you know, before I met him, I figured, you know, he was a, 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 a guy maybe six foot ten with muscles here, you know, sort of like, um, I don't know, Muhammad Ali and, and holding a, a rifle here and a spear here. And, you know, he would be a macho guy because that, that was the impression I had of him. And I meet this short, fat little Jewish guy <laughs> who my big problem with Murray is stomach cramps. He would have me in stitches for hour after hour after hour, just laughing. I'm, I'm like, like that. When I listen to him on YouTube, he just has me. Oh, yeah. Oh, it, it, he was horrible. I mean, you know, <laughs> and he was such a sweetie pie. Yeah. Uh, I, I remember one time uh, I started reading Rothbard and Mises, and I realized that and Murray converted me to anarchism in about five minutes. And he had a picture of Mises on the wall. And I said, Murray, why do you have a picture of Mises on the wall? He's not an anarchist. And Murray just sort of smiled at me. I mean, I was such an idiot <laughs> when I was a kid. Uh, any reasonable person would have smacked me for saying that. But Murray was just so gentle with me and with many other people. And he just sort of smiled and said, well, you know, you, you, you'll catch on or you'll get the point. Uh, you know, just keep reading Mises. Yes, he was an anarchist, but, you know. So Murray was very gentle and, and very loving and very lovely and, and very, very funny. Even uh, Bill Buckley, who was no friend of Murray Rothbard's, uh, uh, conceded or, or acknowledged the fact uh, that Murray was very funny. And he would uh, call Murray, uh, Murray and his merry band, <laughs> which I think was ap uh, appropriate, uh, apropos for Murray, because he was, you know, just hilarious. Yeah. I mean, in addition to his genius, uh, and the fact that he was not just a genius in economics, but in history and in um, uh, psychology and sociology and philosophy and mathematics and just, the, you know, he was sort of like a renaissance man, a, a, a genius in, in everything practically. He knew like everything about baseball, everything about, I mean, he, he yeah, he was just uh, really like an autodidact. Yeah, uh, sort of like a little bit like uh, David Gordon, who was. Well, an autodidact is someone who learned it all on his own, but he was sort of like a, I forget what the word is, where you know everything about everything. Yeah, I think Rothbard said, you know, Gordon's a universal genius and like, it's the saddest thing that he never lived up to his full potential, which I disagree. I think he's done quite a bit, but he is like, I hear people say they talk to David Gordon and Gordon's like, yeah, you're going to want to go check out page 456, you know, third paragraph down, second word, you know, like he's that exact all the time. Yeah, I don't think Murray was... Uh... Uh, encyclopedic in that way. I remember when I first met David Gordon, he said, oh, you're Walter Block. You published, the, you know, and give me the title and the, the, the journal name and the page number and all that. And, you know, I don't remember any of that. And, and uh, David Gordon does that with everyone. So uh, David Gordon is like an encyclopedia. Murray wasn't quite like that, but he was very knowledgeable about many, many things, including baseball and jazz music and uh, also movies. He was Mr. First Nighter uh, in a uh, libertarian forum. So oh, let, let me just ask that question real quick, because uh, I solicited some questions from like the Tom Woods Facebook group. And one question was, Murray used to do mo movie reviews. I don't know if you've ever read a Star Wars review. Hilarious. He calls Carrie Fisher uh, ugly and abrasive. But what were his favorite kind of movies? And what was his favorite movie, if you know? Well, I don't know about his favorite movie, but I remember um, uh, there was a movie that I attended with Murray. And it had John Wayne as um, the some 
soldier in the Vietnam War, and he was called Bulldog. And Murray was trying to radicalize the whole movie theater, and he was <laughs> kill Bulldog. Bulldog was John Wayne, you know, the, the hero, uh, you know, because he's uh, uh, killing all the uh, Orientals or whoever we were, uh, Vietnamese. So um, <laughs> Murray was <laughs> Murray was uh, was something else. I, I recall a story Tom once told. I think it was a few months before Murray died, and Murray sat down next to Tom. And uh, it was right when Jeffy Dahmer got killed in prison, and, and Murray looks at Tom and is just like, "They got him." <laughs> <laughs> no, was was a man of the people as well. I mean, I, I remember one time uh, uh, some TV uh, thing. What they'll do is they'll uh, interview the man in the bus or the man on the street, and Murray looks like the man on the street. He doesn't look, you know, particularly. He's not a movie star looking or anything like that. And they start interviewing Murray, and they're expecting some ignorant uh, fool who, you know, like like Jay Leno used to do interviews on the street, and you know, people would would uh, misunderstand two plus two is four, or you know, things like that. And and they're getting this Murray, uh, very erudite, uh, very articulate, and they were sort of whoa. Oh, uh, I can't remember who told the story. It was a guy talking about how he signed up for a Murray Rothbard economics class, and he said he walked into the class late, and people were just furiously taking notes. Like, and when I listen to Rothbard talk, like I've tried to listen to Rothbard speeches and take notes, and man, I got to play it like half as slow just to like get some of the main points across because he could pack so much in, 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 into a lecture. It's incredible. By the way, I have to brag in two regards with regard to Murray. One, I am honored by the fact that. Once or twice, Murray asked me to take his place at Brooklyn Polytech when he had a Mrs. class. Wow. Never so knew that. I, I taught Murray's intro micro class. Uh, I don't know how many other people can say that, but I can say that. That's something special. Second uh, bragging is I've co-authored a lot of things with a lot of people, and one of my co-authors is Murray Rothbard. What but was I, that on? I'm sorry? Well, what piece was that? It was the... Introduction to the Review of Austrian Economics. You remember what year? Uh, I don't remember what year it was, but the first year that the Review of Austrian Economics came out. I mean, I'll, I'll look for Murray Rothbard, Walter Block intro, but uh, yeah. Uh, I think I think I can say without failing, uh, without the mistake, that I'm the only co-author he ever had. And also, really? uh, I have a lot more in common with Murray. We're both short, fat Jews. <laughs> we both married Christian girls. Both of the Christian girls were taller than us. We both got PhDs at um, Columbia. We're both from New York City. And I think in, in some ways I'm closer to Murray than anyone else on the planet in those four or five um, regards. Now, Hans Hoppe was very, very close to Murray, but Hans is not a short, fat Jew. <laughs> Hans uh, isn't from Brooklyn or, or New York City. Hans didn't get his PhD from uh, Columbia. Uh, uh, Hans uh, didn't marry a woman who was taller than him. Uh, yeah. So I, I, I'm beating who's competitive with Hans, not me. Not me but, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but in this regard, Murray and I are, are very, very close. Yeah. Well, I, I have another really good question for you, and this is kind of an oddball question. Um, the Koch brothers, they're obviously these, this big right wing, you know, everybody hates the Koch brothers, especially the past few years. And I read some of your books. I noticed uh, the Koch brothers donated back then. But what happened with Koch and Murray? Because from my understanding, I think it was Charles Koch ran for office and just kind of gave up on his principles and Mur Murray called him out on it. And no. when you think of when, 
was no, that? That's not what happened. Charles Koch, I don't think, ever ran for office. David Koch, his brother, ran for vice president. That's who it was. With, um, oh, who was it? Um, Ed Clark, I think it was, on the Libertarian Party ticket. But I don't think that that was the breaking point between Murray and Charles Koch. Uh, first of all, I have to tell you a Charles Koch story. Sure, great. Uh, my wife and I and his wife and he were standing on a uh, sidewalk in, I don't remember where it was, um, Scotland, England, somewhere around there. And along comes this drunken guy who says, uh, the sidewalks are for walking, uh, not standing. We were standing on the sidewalk. You, you four people get into the gutter and allow me to pass. Now, he said this in a drunken way. I'm just articulating it more clearly. And you know what Charles did? He went like that. He assumed the boxing position. Wow. And, I mean, this was in the 70s, maybe before Charles Koch was Charles Koch. You'd think a guy like that, he's a super-duper multi-zillionaire, billionaire, trillionaire, whatever he is. You'd think he'd have five bodyguards, but there were no bodyguards. And he's ready to fight this guy. Uh, that, <laughs> I got to ask, how, how did you know him? Was he just like a donor, or was he actually a good no. friend at the time, or...? Oh, this was the time when Murray and Charles were friendly. Okay. It was a conference in Windsor Castle in England, and then we went to Scotland, and we went here and there. I forget where we were. Uh, so Charles and Murray met, and Charles and Murray uh, had an affinity for each other and uh, supported each other. And, um, I mean, Charles had the money and the ideas, and Murray didn't have much money, but he had a lot of ideas. And uh, I think the initiation of the Cato Institute was at the behest of Murray's suggestion, and Charles uh, put up the money for it. And I think even the name Cato was a Murray suggestion based on yeah, Cato's letter. But then they had a falling out. Uh, Murray uh, uh, didn't see the Cato Institute as being as radical as Murray wanted, and Charles was happy with it. But then again, uh, by this time, I was sort of out in Canada I, I from 91, no, from 80, 79 and 91, I was in Canada. And uh, a lot of this stuff happened when I was out of the picture. So I, I, I only had like a, a third, um, a secondhand or a thirdhand view of this. But So I'm just giving you what I know about it, but I might not be as accurate as I could be. But they had a falling out. I think uh, part of it was over uh, personality. Part of it was over ideology. And they had a falling out. And um, I don't know. Uh, I have to mention something else with, with Charles Koch, uh, and that is that several of his people came to me when I was in New Orleans maybe 15 years ago, and they said, we like what you're doing, namely with students. I've got a lot of students who are now professors, uh, went to get PhDs, and are now promoting liberty. But we, uh, we like what you're doing. How can we help you do more of it? I said, well, give me some money. Mm. And they gave me money. And uh, they still support me and my colleagues to the tune of, oh, 20, 30, 40, 50,000 a year. Something, you know, <clears throat> for them, not, not big, but for me, gigantic. And I'm very grateful to them. On the other hand, I'm very, very associated with the Mises Institute. And uh, the Mises Institute was Murray's home, and Lou Rockwell is in charge of it. And, and there's a great enmity between uh, Lou Rockwell and Murray on the one hand, and Charles and his group on the other hand. And... I don't know um, if ever anyone needs a referee. <laughs> I'm friendly with both. <clears throat> Maybe I could be that referee or that uh, person who puts, you know, puts an end to this um, to this fight. That's interesting. It's just been like a long 
going thing. I mean, I just, I just that was interesting. I wanted to ask about that. Now, here's a really, really interesting question. I was listening to you talk about Murray once, and you said, quote, uh, Murray was such a fun guy. He used to, quote, uh, drink and smoke. Did Murray used to drink and smoke or do anything fun? Because obviously he wasn't a hippie. We know what he thought about hippies, but what did he do that was considered bad for, for Murray? Well, uh, Murray uh, thought about hippies roughly the way that um, um, uh, Cartman uh, of South Park <laughs> thinks about hippies. <laughs> By the way, Cartman is one of my favorite characters in all <laughs> And uh, Murray is a little bit like Cartman in some ways, you know, uh, certainly on, on the hippie question. Uh, Murray was the kind of person that your parents warned you against. He would drink alcohol. He would sometimes smoke, and he would stay up late. Now, would he smoke cigars or cigarettes? I just can't imagine what he'd be smoking. You know, I don't even remember him smoking. I'm not sure. He would certainly drink alcohol. And my parents were, you know, um, you can have wine on Yom Kippur or something like that, or Shabbos, and that's about it. And Murray would drink the hard stuff sometimes. I mean, he wasn't, uh, you know, a heavy drinker, but he would drink alcohol, and he would stay up late. A typical Murray... Uh, evening or day would be he'd get up at around two in the afternoon and he'd go to sleep at six in the morning or five in the morning or something like that. So he, you know, he stayed out late, he drank and, you know, he's sort of the person that my parents would say, stay away from because, you know, he'll lead you astray. Uh, he was not a hippie. Obviously he was not a hippie and he enjoyed a party and uh, he, he would have dinner at this, um, jazz place on Broadway near his house. He lived on 88th Street, and uh, there were places where they played jazz, and, and he would... Uh, I heard his favorite um, type of music was jazz. Someone told me that. Is that true? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. I, just, I just didn't take him for a jazz guy. I don't know why, what I imagined him listening to. It's not jazz. I don't know. <laughs> well, I used to tease him and say that, you know, when I took over as Emperor of the Universe, there'd be no more jazz. There'd be just Mozart <laughs> and Bach, so you better enjoy it while you can. You know, we were oh, just being silly. Well, let's see here. I mean, I, I could probably talk to you for freaking hours about Murray Rothbard. Um, what was one of the last memories you had with him? Wow. Well, uh, he passed away while I was in, in uh, Canada, and I hadn't seen him all that much. But uh, we would communicate a little bit by mail and by, by phone. Um, I don't know. Uh, you know, I don't remember exactly the last time I, I had much uh, uh, interface with him. I remember going to his funeral, and um, I don't know, there must have been six or 700 people there. And it was a very sad event. He was only 68 years old. I, I think he, How did he die? He was in the dentist's chair getting his teeth fixed, and I think he had a heart attack or a stroke wow. or something like that uh, right on the dentist's chair. Wow. Um, it, it was, you know, uh, that is not the way for a guy like him to go, man. You know, I, I think of him a lot nowadays. Every time something happens, like with Trump, or you know, going into Syria, or the the political correctness, or, and you know, I I, I wish Murray. I think of Murray pretty much every day, and I wish that he were here. I know he's up there somewhere, even though I'm an atheist. I think he's up there somewhere, looking down on us and rooting us on and, you know, trying to help us to promote liberty and, and good e Austrian economics. But uh, we miss him. Uh, you know, when the Godfather died in, in the uh, Godfather movies, they said we this uh, gang lost half its power with one guy. Well, I think it's very similar. Murray was half of the movement in a sense. Yeah. 
I mean, he was only one guy, and there were – when I first met Murray and I asked him how many libertarians there were, and this must have been in, oh, 1965 or six. he said 25. 25 libertarians in the whole world? And now they're, I don't know, uh, in the millions, probably. Oh, I think, I think Murray, I think it's true. He is looking down, and I think he's so proud of how far the movement comes. When, when did the Mises uh, Institute start? It was in the 80s. I think 82. 82, yeah. I mean, I'm not I, think, sure. I, I honestly can't believe how far the movement's come. Just since, like, 2012, I, I was a typical found out about Ron Paul and uh, eventually found out about Tom Woods and... You know, just led me down the path to be a scholar, and I'm so happy because I I would have been a socialist. You talk about how you know Hayek was a socialist, you were a socialist, and literally pinkos. But I took one economics class, and I had a girl in front of me. She was a hardcore leftist, and she asked the teacher, "Why can't we just print more money?" And my teacher was probably no Austrian economist, but he he understood scarcity. He explained that you know money has value because it's scarce. So that that really that one moment changed my life. Uh, you know, that one moment led me to be talking to Dr. Walter Block right now. <laughs> you mentioned Ron Paul. I wanted to mention Ron Paul a little bit because Ron Paul is one of Murray's friends, uh, one of his important friends, one of his best friends. And Ron Paul was once uh, accused of being an anti-Semite. And the response was, well, who are two of his favorite uh, friends, uh, mentors, gurus, and it was Mises and Rothbard, both of whom were Jewish. So it's hard to see how Ron Paul is exactly an anti-Semite. Uh, I mean, exactly. he had certain views on Israel that people didn't like, but but to think of him as an anti-Semite is uh, preposterous. It's grotesque because his two heroes were both Jews. Oh, Tom told a story once that, you know, Lou Rockwell used to be called Jew Rockwell because all his friends around him were Jews. And it's like, how are you an anti-Semite? And yeah, it doesn't make any sense. That was that was probably going to be my last question for you. Is Murray often gets the rep of being a self-hating Jew and it's just kind of doesn't really make sense. Uh, maybe you can just tackle that. Well, I have different views on Israel than Murray, which is and by the way, I have different views uh, then Murray on maybe 10 different issues. And I published articles, uh, at least half of them while he was alive. And he never, ever once even hinted at being angry at me on, on any of this. For example, voluntary slavery. I think it's a legitimate contract. He doesn't um, on Israel. Uh, that came up later. Uh, whereas with Ayn Rand, you know, you disagree with her on the slightest jot or tittle of anything, and, and you know, that's it for you. Right. He was a cultist. Murray was never like that. Murray was friendly with people who disagreed with him. Uh, look, uh, Murray is a pro-choice person. Ron Paul is a pro-life person. They're 180 degrees apart on, on the issue of, uh, of abortion or uh, uh, babies and, and all, and, and yet Murray and, and Ron were fast friends. So Murray is not the kind of a guy to break with you because you, you have a disagreement on you know one or two issues. Right. I think you mentioned once that Murray was get, going up to give a speech and he was going to kind of criticize Mises and he was just sweating, shaking, like I'm about to go criticize my mentor. I think maybe from that perspective, he he realized the leap he had to take uh, to, go, to get to anarcho-capitalism. Like, hey, like violence and coercion is always wrong. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. You know, I model my life many ways on Murray. Murray always insisted that I call him Murray, so I insist that my students call me Walter. Not Murray. <laughs> I call me Walter. I had a, another uh, story I wanted to share with you. Murray was once talking about money, and he said, here's a, a, a sheet of paper that says 10 Rothbards. And he was saying, you know, nobody would take that. And I raised my hand and said, Murray, I'll take it. I'll take it. <laughs> I'll tell you. 
and, and Murray said, shut up, shut up. I'm trying to make a point here. Now, obviously, um, uh, I was just being silly. But I tell you, if I had a sheet of paper that said 10 Rothbards in his um, uh, handwriting, that thing would be worth thousands now. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so Murray was wrong. Well, uh, you know, I honestly have one really, really good last question. I know we agreed to an hour, so we'll wrap it up. But tell me about, oh, I have two small questions. Maybe you can combine them all. What was Murray's typewriter? And what was Murray's apartment like? Because I don't know, does someone still live there nowadays? I don't know. When's, when's the last time you've been in Murray's old apartment? Well, I haven't been in his apartment for a long time, but every time the Mises Institute has a uh, supportive summit in New York City, what we do is we get this bus and we go around the Mises house and Murray's house and, and NYU where Mises gave seminars in Columbia. And we just passed Murray's house a year or so ago and the house is still there. And uh, he was on the second floor so I could practically see in, but I didn't see much of anything. Uh, what was the apartment look like? Like when you walked in, like, was it a big, small area? Cause I, I hear the stories that everyone was always in Murray's apartment. Well, there was the Murray's living room and I sort of see the Mises Institute is the Murray's living room writ large. Yeah. Murray, uh, had a, 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 you walked into his living room and you turn to the right and you're in the living room and it's the living room where we all sat around and giggled over uh, over everything. Behind the living room was um, their bedroom, and then uh, there was a, a laboratory, and then there was Murray's office, and then there was this long, long hall, maybe 30, 40 feet long, uh, and uh, very high ceilings. And on both sides, you sort of had to squeeze into that hallway because on both sides there were bookcases up to the ceiling full. And now in the Mises Institute, there is a, a place in their library with just has Murray's books. And Murray would underline, you know, pretty much everything when he would read a book and he'd write, you know, uh, marginal comments. Right. And were too kind to the author. So that, that was no joke. His house was literally full of books. Oh, full of books. And then once you get past the uh, hall, uh, then there's the um, uh, kitchen. Um yeah, uh, so that was uh, Murray's uh, uh, apartment. Uh, he he, ne he never he only wrote on a typewriter. Uh, computers were just sort of coming in, and you know, old dogs, new tricks, and you know, people were trying to push him into computers, and he was going whack whack. Um, <laughs> I don't like to brag, but that's a good interpretation of Murray uh, Murray <laughs> responding whack whack. Uh, so he wouldn't really get into computers. Uh, Probably had he lived longer, he would have, but um, uh, it was just coming in at the time. And he just had a, you know, a, a typewriter and, and you'd be little cross outs and use the whiteout. And I have to tell you another story about me and Murray. Please do. Uh, I, uh, years ago when I first started writing, I would keep track of how many words I would write or how many pages I would write. And my usual page is 300 words. And if I did five pages of 300 words, 1500 words, I was happy with myself. A lot of days I didn't quite make that, but many days I did. And every once in a while I would do 10 or maybe 15 pages. One day I got up early in the morning. I stayed up until the next morning at 2 in the morning. And at the end of the day, I had 23 pages. So I called Murray, and, and this was like way better than anything else I'd ever done. I'm not talking about the quality of it, but just the quantity. So I called Murray and said, well, how many pages can you write in a day? I'm, you know, trying to compare with the master. And Murray goes, rah, rah, who, you know, who keeps track of that? And I kept pressing. I, I kept pressing. And finally, what he said is, um, 
What was eight it? pages an hour. Eight pages an hour. I've heard you tell that story a lot, but that's a, that's a really, really great story. <laughs> so in my best day, I did three of his hours roughly, but it took me a whole day. And, yeah. you know, there were all these sorts of stories of, you know, Murray uh, didn't realize he had a deadline for paper when he ducks out into the office for two hours and comes out with 16 pages of just brilliant stuff right on the stupid typewriter. And, you know, um, someone was talking or I was reading something and it was talking about how they were going through Murray's old records and just reading like his old manuscripts. This guy would hardly make any spelling errors, hardly any grammatical errors. If he was, when he would go back over his writing, he would just put like a big red X through things he didn't like. He wouldn't, I mean, it was just kind of crazy reading this. It's like, how do you, how do you write that well? It's like he, he noticed all the grammatical errors before they occurred. Well, how does Mozart write? How does Bach yeah. write? Uh, how does Mises write? How does Rothbard write? Yeah. Uh, if I were a religious person, I would say God was helping him. I'm not. I, uh, I'm not religious, so I would just say they were geniuses, and geniuses uh, write. Uh, look, I never compared the quality of what I wrote compared to, to, to the man, just the quantity. And in the quantity, uh, he was just amazing. Eight pages an hour. A good typist, 100 words an hour, could do better than Murray. Just, just, just typing what they're copying, though. He was producing right. new ideas. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. So he yeah. was. If, if economics and liberty had ever gone out of fashion, he might have made a living as a typist. Yeah. Well, geez, Walter. I mean, I'm, I'm sitting here. I'm thinking of like ten questions for every question to ask you. I'm gonna have to call it. Can we, can we do this again soon? Absolutely. It was a pleasure. Oh, it was an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much, Walter. We'll see you next time. Hey everyone, please like, follow, donate, subscribe, and share. Any donations will be used to reach more people.